0: You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. And so, as we jump into looking at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus... I think it's good for us to stop and get a perspective. Now, in studying the Bible, of course, you can do the thing where where you go, well, this letter was written in probably 43 AD, somewhere between 43 and 46 AD. And we could describe Ephesus. And everybody who talks about Ephesus talks about how it was such a modern city at the time. It was a port city. And so there was all kinds of different people there. All of that is true. All of that is true. And that's fine. That type of study is okay. But... I think actually scripture being the best commentator on scripture actually gives us a view of the church in Ephesus that's really helpful. So I, I said turn to Ephesians and I meant that. But also take note of Revelation at the very end of scripture and look at Revelation chapter 2. The very beginning of Revelation chapter 2. Now this is the revelation that that um, God gave to Jesus to show John and the purpose of the book of Revelation. I think this is one of those things that um, often gets missed because Revelation is such a fun book and it's confusing and it's mysterious and it's, it's like, okay, what, what are we reading here? What are the symbols? What are the signs? What does this represent? And a lot of times people look at the, at the book of Revelation and they want to treat it like the playbook for the end of the world as though it's a chronological account of what's going to happen at the end of time. That's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation was for Jesus to send encouragement to his church in the present age, meaning at the time that the revelation was given to John and John records these visions and what they represent. The purpose was to encourage the church in that day that Jesus was the conquering king. And that the persecution that they were experiencing, they would ultimately be victorious whether they were martyred, killed for their faith, as heroes in the faith, or... Jesus returned whether they were alive at the time that Jesus returned or not that Jesus is the victorious one that the purpose was to build them up so that they would endure persecution because at the time those who were receiving the revelation and hearing it from John were under the persecution of the Roman Empire and so they were very much like today Christians in various parts of the world being destroyed, being killed, being, being persecuted for the name of Jesus and for their faith. And so Jesus, at the very beginning of the revelation in chapters two and three, writes or speaks very specific words to the various churches in Asia Minor. And these, these, these uh, words of encouragement and also rebuke and also instruction were given as a vision to John to send these letters out to the church. Now these would have traveled that mail Roman mail route that we've looked at before that took place in Ephesus or in uh, Asia Minor. Now as Jesus speaks, he speaks to the angel of each of the churches. And the whole idea of the angel of the church is the messenger to the church. The way that most scholars think about that is that the angel of the church was the pastor or the bishop of the church at that time, the overseer, the one who was leading a local congregation. There are others who believe perhaps that that has a spiritual implication, that somehow there's a actual angel that oversees or protects each church. I like that explanation. I don't find that to be necessarily how it's written into the text. So when... Uh, jesus speaks he's speaking to the head the pastor the bishop of each church for him to then communicate to the rest of the church so look at revelation 2 chapter 1 pardon me revelation 2 verse 1 is what i meant to say and it says to the angel of the church in ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is one of those things. This isn't a study of Revelation. I'm not, it's not my purpose, but it is important as we read things that can seem mysterious or confusing that we understand that all of the imagery in Revelation is explained in Revelation. There's nothing mysterious in terms of the the imagery and and the the sort of um, strangeness of what we see. It's all described within the text. In fact, if you just look up one verse, in uh revelation 120 it says as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand jesus speaking to john and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches so there you go stars and lampstands what does that mean it's the pastors and the churches that's what it means so we continue on uh revelation chapter two The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. Jesus says in verse two, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Man, what a great commendation. Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, you guys have been doing good work. You guys have been working hard, your toil, you've been patient, and you've endured the things that have come against you. And and, and he would say that you guys are, uh, in our language, he would probably say, boy, you guys have been theologically consistent. You've maintained the good doctrine, the good apostles doctrine in the way that you've been taught. You've maintained those things. And he says, you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Remember Jesus warned his disciples that after he left, there would be wolves who would come in sheep's clothing. They would look like they're a part of the church, a member of the church, but their whole purpose was to infiltrate the church to come in and try and pick members of the church off and deceive them and draw them away from the truth that Jesus had taught them. Jesus says in the last days, there are gonna be those who come and who deceive the church, right? People who would look like an apostle or a disciple or someone who's a Bible teacher, and yet they're teaching and saying things that don't match up to what Jesus said or what the church has consistently historically believed and held to. That's a huge issue in our day and age. One of the reasons we study scripture is to discern who's telling the truth and who's not. That's an important piece. Now there's a limit to that. You know, we understand that God's the one who judges men and, and our, Our intention is to have fidelity in what we study, read and practice, not necessarily to make an entire ministry out of being what they call a heresy hunter. There are people, tons of channels on YouTube and tons of people who all they want to do is critique everybody else's ministry and say, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. My goodness, I think the truth is, is that if we're seeking the Lord in the scriptures in how it has always been taught and being consistent in our reading and understanding of scripture, then we're going to know and understand what's false and what's true as we measure it against the word of God. And and we don't necessarily need entire websites and ministries that are looking to tear down other people. God's going to be their judge. God's going to judge them. It's up to us individually to have good discernment. Now, here's the scary part. We've all seen people that we love and care for, people who are seeking the Lord, who have got caught in perhaps poor teaching or churches that are not teaching uh, with good fidelity in in the scriptures. They're creating other doctrines, man-made doctrines. And it is our responsibility in those situations to take a brother or sister aside and to be able to tell them from the scripture, hey, this is why that church that you're going to or that preacher that you're listening to and giving all your money to Here's why that's not biblical. Here's why that's not healthy or good. But we need to have an authority with us when we go and not just say, I just don't like that guy. We need to have an awareness of why. And this is what Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for, saying that they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Meaning there was good discernment in the church. There were people there who were fluent and and aware of what the apostles' doctrine was. In verse three, he says, I know you have, are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. They were a group of people. They were a church, an expression of the body of Christ who were faithful in maintaining <coughs> the message of Jesus Christ. And Jesus encourages them in this. But here's the other side of that coin. In verse four, Revelation 2, four, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let's just take that section and, and focus in on that. Jesus commends them for their fidelity to scripture we can, uh, we can understand in his language that they are enduring persecution of some kind and they are not abandoning the name of Jesus. They're standing strong in the name of Jesus and what they've been taught. Commendable, that's right, that's good. It's important to have your theology right. But what Jesus says is, here's what I have against you. Here's the issue at hand. It's not that you're teaching incorrectly. It's not that you're false prophets. It's not that you're not studying the scripture. It's that you're not passionately loving me the way you did the moment you were saved. When you understood your salvation for what that means, that you're saved from your sins, that you are so thankful that you now have the hope of heaven, so much so that you wanted to unite yourself with Jesus through baptism, through the communion elements, through the body of Christ, you wanted to be a part of Jesus and his family and his body when you first heard of of what that meant and and were were taught those things, you were passionate, you were in love, you were just excited about what that means. And Jesus says that you have fallen or abandoned the love you you had at first. And he says the cure for that is as simple as this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did At first, a good friend of mine wrote a worship song years ago, said, remember, repent and repeat. That was the the simple thing. Remember where it is that you came from. Jesus died for me on the cross for my sins so that I could have eternal life, so that I could be free from the bondage and the consequence of sin. I'm remembering that. I'm simply going to repent of the fact that I've left that as my motivation and love in life. And then I'm just going to repeat that process. (laughs) Remember again and and repent again. That's the rest of my life is spending that time doing that. And I love that. And so Jesus, he he warns the church then. He reminds them that that they need to, to return to that love and that passionate desire for the things of Jesus. And he says, if not... Here's the result or the consequence. If you don't, you could have your theology right all day long. You could be the church that everybody goes to and says, uh, why don't you produce a study Bible for us so that we know what all the verses mean, right? We want to be theologically correct. Why don't you start a seminary and teach us all the, the right way to interpret scripture? Okay, that's fine. You're doing that. That's good. But you're God's chosen frozen. <laughs> you're, you're the ones who got all the theology Right? But you have none of the Spirit, because remember what Jesus told the woman at the well—that God is searching for those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. We'll see this in the division of of how Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians. The Christian life—it's a tightrope. It's a tightrope. Tight we're walking on this fine line that we're supposed to balance. We need truth. We need to know who God is. We need to understand his word. But we also need to passionately, emotionally, fully spiritually engage with him. That's, that's, that's the balancing act that we as Christians have to, have to endure and and walk with in our life. And so here's the warning. Jesus says, if you don't do this, if you don't return to this passionate love, this zeal that you're supposed to have for Jesus, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I don't say this with any amount of judgment in terms of like, Hey, we're better than anybody else, but Do you realize or understand that as you drive around most cities, but if you just take ours, for instance, there are so many churches that are simply buildings that are not full of the spirit of God. They may be teaching the Bible. They may, they may have right theology within their walls, but the churches are dead. It's as if Jesus has come and removed their authority, removed their, their, uh, Uh, Title as church, as body of Christ. They may have the theology, right? But they're not passionately loving Jesus. They don't have this authority that Jesus imparts to those who walk in spirit and in truth. And that's a frightening thing to say, listen, we want to be people who study the Bible. We want to know what it says. We want to have it accurate and and be within the, the, the boundaries of orthodoxy, what has always been true but we also need to balance that with a passionate love for Jesus. And and that's why this this theme of of what we've been talking about, not just who we are in Christ, but how we are in Christ that we've studied the last month or so. So that's why I'm so excited about getting into Ephesians is because the way that Ephesians is uh, divided, the first three chapters are really about um, the doctrinal emphasis of God's accomplishment in salvation. It's learning the truth of the fact that God is responsible for salvation. No one else. Like God's, it begins and ends with God, okay? But the second half of the letter, in chapters four through six, what we see is the practical emphasis, meaning the Christian's responsibility in our salvation. When we are saved, when Jesus does apply his salvific work to our lives, where uh, we're, uh, we receive the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, then we have responsibilities as Christians. We don't just get to, enjoy the blessings and benefits of of getting to go to heaven, and then just on with our life as it was, we've received an entirely new purpose and plan for our life that was different from before we were saved. And so this is this this general outline of uh, chapters one through three having a real doctrinal emphasis, and chapters four through six in Paul's letter to the Ephesians having this practical emphasis really is a model for our whole life in that, We walk that tightrope, tightrope. We don't polarize our faith into any one single camp. And and the truth is, is that the church needs to hear this message because there are those within the church where, my goodness, uh, not to mock them or or to be rude to them at all. But there's a lot of theological knowledge, but there's zero spirit. And, And a lot of times those churches that are very doctrinally, um, Uh, significant, meaning they teach good scriptural interpretation and they teach good doctrine. Uh, Oftentimes what you see with those churches is they're sometimes the church that's dying, like we just said, because they're not out there loving people the way that Jesus loves them. They're not passionate about the love of Jesus. They forget the fact that they were dirty, rotten sinners saved by God's grace. And they're not going out and evangelizing. They're not inviting their friends to come to church. They're just sitting there judging all the other churches going, yeah, but you have that, you know, Romans 8 and 9, you're not interpreting that right, or you're not interpreting Revelation right. And so we're going to just keep our people to ourselves. And and if you want to know the truth, come and see us. But we're not going to go out and talk about the love of Jesus. We're not going to go out and spread love and, and make a difference in our communities because that's what God has called us to do. And so oftentimes those churches are dying. And so if you fall to that side of just doctrine, 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 study, 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 you can end up missing out on the ministry that we've been called to. And the truth is, is that others, the other side of the coin, if you fall to the other side of that tightrope, tight rope, there are other churches and ministries who utterly ignore the knowledge that we need to have on how we're to love God who he really is, and that you end up with man-made doctrines uh, and misinterpretations of scripture that send people off into wild flights of fancy that they claim to be Holy Spirit-inspired, but are really just ridiculousness, garbage, and and things that are not represented in scripture at all. And, And so we really do need that combination and that balancing act of spirit, We're supposed to love Jesus, be passionate, be moved by the Holy Spirit in all the ways that we see exemplified in scripture, but we also need to be deep in the word of God to understand who he is and how we are to respond to him. And so um, as, as Paul divides this letter into those two halves, it's a good thing for us to understand what to expect. Chapters one, two, and three are really going to deal with uh, the, the, the the theological aspect of God's salvation and who He calls the church to be, and four, five, and six is really going to talk about this new life that we have in Christ and what that how that's supposed to look on a very practical uh, in a very practical aspect. Now, there's something also that I find significant in this letter. Um, that's perhaps a little bit unique compared to the others. In Paul's greetings, his salutations, the beginning and endings of the letters, he always has a very prayerful tone or will mention that he's praying for the church. But within the text, there are three significant prayers that Paul prays that are sort of these exclamation points, if you will, on the points that he's making to the church. And so mark this down and and I'll point them out as we move along, but I find this to be really encouraging and, and and an example for us again, as a perhaps third rail of, of uh, importance in that balancing act, uh, theology, uh, zeal and spiritual love, but also prayer activating all of those things in chapter one, verses 15 through 23, Paul specifically prays for the Ephesian church. He prays for them specifically in chapter one, verses 15 through 23. In chapter three, verses 14 through 21, he prays for the church as a whole. On Sunday, you'll remember that I made the distinction between the local and the global church. The local gathering of the church would be what we consider lowercase C or, or, or a small C church, local gathering. The, the the global church, the universal church that Paul will describe in chapter four and the unity that we're, we're to have would be what I call capital C church. That's the definition of the entire body of Christ. And in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul prays for the whole church. And then in chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul shows us as a model how we're to be praying for one another. Again. There's a theological emphasis, and then there's a very practical emphasis. So chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, we'll see Paul giving us, giving us an example of how we're to pray for one another. Now, identifying sort of this outline and recognizing these features of the letter is important because it is such a parallel to what we've been learning and what, God, I, what I believe God is doing in our community. And I think there's three things that, that are reflective of of what we're experiencing in this very moment that we'll see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Number one, that we need to have a passionate love for Jesus because of who he is and what he's done for us. I think that's what we get out of Revelation chapter two is we need to be people who are passionate about Jesus. Not just be those who would stand up for the name of Jesus. Yes, we're to do that. Not just people who are like, hey, we're Bible people. Yes, we need to do that. But we need to engage the emotional, spiritual side of our relationship with the Lord and just remember that we're to love Jesus because of what he's done for us and who he is. The second thing that I think parallels what we're starting to understand and even learn in our community and what I believe the church at large needs to learn is how to be obedient to what Jesus teaches us. He saves us. He redeems us. But then he also gives us instructions, and I think we have a job in front of us in terms of pursuing obedience. And then thirdly, I think the thing that parallels for us with Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that we need to have a devotion to pray for God's will to be done. Prayer is one of those marks, like I said, like I said, uh, as we were walking through those eight points of of what it means or how it is that we are recognized and defined as God's people as a part of the church, not just who we are, but how we are. Like I said, there's so many other things that could have been added to that list, uh, tons, and specifically prayer could have been one of those things that we are recognized and defined as God's church, as his people in the manner that we pray for his will to be done. That's important. And so those three things, I believe we need to have a passionate love for Jesus. I think we need to be obedient servants to Jesus. And I think we need to have a devotion to pray for God's will will to be done. And I think we see that in Paul's instructions to the Ephesians church here. So let's jump in Ephesians chapter one. And we'll get through this first section tonight. Ephesians chapter one, verse one says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As always, Paul's introduction has several features that are important to notice. Paul recognizes and, and identifies himself. I was reading one uh, uh, commentary on this and there was someone uh, who said that it was disputed who the writer of Ephesians was, and I looked at it and I just went how how can you dispute like like it says Paul?" i found that to be interesting and so not all study material is equal not all study materials is good you got to be discerning in what commentary you're reading all those things but first of all paul says that he's an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god an apostle as you know is one who's been sent directly by jesus who's been sent out by jesus for the purpose of building up the body of christ and i believe in our day and age Although we don't live in the apostolic age, meaning the original apostles, I believe the spirit of apostleship still exists specifically within those who are church planters, those people who go out and take the gospel to places where it has not been before, or perhaps where the church is dead or dying, and they go in and they attempt to to bring the gospel and revitalize. I believe that's the spirit of apostleship being sent under the great commission to go out and build up the church Paul being one who was sent directly by Jesus having met him in his vision uh, as Paul as Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus Paul was an official apostle sent by Jesus by the will of God and I find this interesting and so comforting to the saints who are in Ephesus there's so much language that I think there, there's language that is used biblically that oftentimes in the evangelical world has been abandoned because we view it as Catholic. We, there's, there's language that, I, like I've shared before in like the Apostles' Creed, it says that we're one holy uh, Catholic church and people get freaked out because they think that means the church in Rome, but simply the word Catholic means uh, the, the United Church, the, the universal church, all who are in Christ. And, and so we, we get sometimes freaked out by those words. And I think the same thing is true about the word saint. Because you see within the traditions of the Catholic or the Orthodox Church, they refer to Saint so-and-so. When they talk about uh, the letters of Paul, they'll say Saint Paul's letter to the Ephesians, right? Or Saint John's revelation, those kinds of things. (laughs) And and so uh, I I think oftentimes within the evangelical world, we've abandoned some of that language. But I find it to be incredibly encouraging that Paul says, those of you who are in the church at Ephesus... Those of you who, like we saw Jesus say, are faithful and are enduring and you're staying true to the word, you're saints. God refers to them as saints. And I find that to be so encouraging, right? Like, and saints not in that they're perfect or they've been venerated or should be worshipped or anything like that, but just that God approves of them, that they're pursuing holiness, which is our desire. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, I think you find those two things to be synonymous. Those who are called saints are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we jump into verses 3 through 14, there's something very cool here. I had a good friend as he was teaching through this and I was listening to him teach Oftentimes, Ephesians chapter 1 in this section is used in that debate between Calvinists and Arminianists, right? Those who are like, no, God chose only some for salvation, and he knows all those, and he elected them to salvation, and they were predestined before time began, and it's only those that God has chosen, and God has not chosen others. That's sort of the Calvinistic side of things, view of things. Then there's others who, who come from the Arminian view where they say, no, God extends his grace to all of creation. And then mankind chooses whether they're going to believe or not. And they're a partner in their salvation, that kind of a thing. And oftentimes uh, this section of scripture gets used in that debate on one side or the other. Isn't it funny how when people debate scripture, they use the same scripture to argue different points. I find that to be humorous. But my friend, as he was teaching this, pointed out, this isn't even necessarily theological language. It is to us now because we like to define things into categories. We like to know what school of theology you're from. Are are you Arminianist? Are you you a Calvinist? Are you Augustinian? Are you Reform, like that's the language we like to use now because a lot of this has become academic and not real. But remember, this was written to real people in a real experience, gathered together, pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ. And so what this language is, as we read through verses three through 14, it's family language. This is what God is speaking through the apostle Paul to his church, his people. This is family language. That's important to understand because when you're in a family, there's hard things you go through. Yeah. Family's tough. But family at its best is inspiring. Family at its best is the place you want to run to for comfort, for support, for encouragement, all of those things. That's what family is supposed to do. And so think about this in regard to family language. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, here's what we're we're going to find here. That if we think about this in regard to family language, we have to think about Jesus as our big brother. Now, the scripture doesn't say it that way here. But what we have throughout scripture is this uh, understanding that we as the sons and daughters of God... Jesus being the firstborn among all creation, as Paul would say in Romans, he's our big brother. Because Jesus has existed, not in bodily form in the sense of flesh and blood here on earth, but Jesus, the person, the second person of the Godhead, has existed for all eternity. Therefore, he has always been, in one sense, the son of God. And therefore, we who are now brothers and sisters in Christ, he is our Big brother. Now we have to understand in this day and age the significance of the oldest son in the family. Remember the the, the stories of of, that have been told in scripture, or the traditions that we see. What was the oldest son entitled to in his father's family? The blessing. The blessing. What else? The The inheritance. All of the possessions of the father. It may not seem fair to us, right? In our day and age, we're like. Man, they're supposed to be equal. There's four of us kids. We all get 25%, right? In that day and age, that culture, the oldest son was the one who inherited everything. And if you were a girl, good luck. You had to marry well because you didn't get squat, right? And so the oldest son is the one who receives all of this blessing from the father. So Jesus being our older brother, the oldest son, if you will, he has all of the blessing, doesn't he? He's the one who has access to all of the riches of the Father. But here's the beautiful thing that we're gonna see in this section is that everything that is accomplished in Jesus Christ and everything that he has access to as the one who receives blessings from the Father is applied to us. That is the subversive, the turn the world on its head message of what scripture tells us about us. Remember, scripture's not about us for the most part. Scripture's about God and his plan of salvation. Like that's, that's what the Bible's about. If you want to go one theme and explain to someone what the Bible's about without getting into all the specifics of each book and the history and all those things, just tell people the Bible is the story of God's plan of salvation for his people. That's it. But this tells us that we have access to all of these blessings that are Jesus's rightly, but we get because he's sharing them with us. So the very first thing to recognize is that we are blessed in Christ. There's gonna be nine of these. So if you wanted to take notes, there's nine of them. We are, first of all, blessed in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning like praise to him, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly Places understand that the blessings of God are not always physical in nature. The blessings of God are not always going to be experienced in our life here on earth. Again, I think one of the defining characteristics of where the church has has been unfaithful in the modern age is the promotion of the idea that if you believe in Jesus that you're going to receive something in a material sense here in this life. And I just don't think scripture bears that out. It's just not true. Some of the largest ministries in America, at the very least right now, and, and the type of gospel that's going out across much of Africa, is that if you believe... You'll be healed of your illness. If you believe, you're going to receive money of some kind. If you believe, you're going to have some sort of success in your life. And what it turns those preachers into is basically motivational speakers and not proclaimers of the truth of God's word. And so one thing to understand is that we are blessed in Christ. Think of it this way. We are blessed. We've received a gift from God simply in knowing who Christ is. And all of the heavenly blessings that we're going to receive, we receive because of Jesus. One way to also think about this is that the blessings that we receive, we may not receive or experience until heaven. Heaven is that blessing. And, and, and to define that very clearly, heaven is not just simply some place that we go to when we die. The understanding of what heaven is 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 eternity in the presence of God. That's what our hope is. Not simply that we're gonna escape the pain and, and suffering of this world and get to go you know, lay on a cloud someplace. And I know that's a cartoon image, but if you ask most people, nominal Christians or people who have no understanding of, of the scripture, you, you might ask them what their impression of heaven is. And because they watch Warner Brothers cartoons or whatnot, Looney Tunes, they think that's what heaven is. <laughs> Sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, something like that, right? No, heaven Eternity is living in the presence of God's glory with no sin present. And those things, that blessing of knowing Christ, that's where we're really gonna receive the blessing is in being in his presence. So, so let's continue breaking this down. Uh, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Number two, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The second thing to understand in terms of blessing that God has given us is that we are chosen in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. And that's the the key, is that it's in Christ. That all of these things are applied to us. That because of Jesus and his perfection and because of his life and his death and his resurrection, God has also chosen us before the foundation of the world. And this is the mystery. This is, this is the hard part to, to sort of reconcile. And this is what theolo- theologians spend a lot of time trying to figure out. Before the foundations of the world, what does that mean that he chose us? Is it, is Paul saying that he simply chose those of us who are now saved? Those of us who are considered Christians? Or did he choose all of mankind to be like Jesus, right? He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. This, is, this has perplexed me at times, and I've gone back and forth in this. And there was a period in time where I wanted to explain this in sort of a classic Calvinistic fashion that said God knew those who would believe upon Jesus for salvation, that's who he is blessing those who are in Christ, right? And those, those who he uh, chose in Christ. But here's the thing that is interesting when you go back and study. Do you remember when we talked about, um, this is a while ago, what a, what a first century church service looked like? What the form of church was? It was separated into two parts. The, the part of the gathering of God's people that was specifically for God's people and only for God's people was this, the Eucharist, the table of communion, the body and blood of Christ. That was only for Christians. And the time that they spent praying was only for believers. That was the second part of their gathering when they would get together as the body of Christ. Remember how I said like there were some explanations in Eastern traditions, meaning like Eastern Christian traditions, where um, in India and places like that, they still walk miles to get together with the body of Christ not for the teaching of God's word, but to come together and celebrate communion because that's the whole deal about being in the body of Christ. We're being united to Christ. He's given us his body and his blood. He's extending his grace toward us through his sacrifice, therefore, the representation of the body of Christ is what Christians throughout the ages have been longing for, is to be a part of the body of Christ. See, nowadays, in our traditions, everybody gets together because they want to hear somebody teach the Bible really well. They want to, and that's what we are excited about. Oh, I heard this great Bible teacher. I heard this great sermon. That's fine. That's good, and it's important because we need to know the scripture. But for the gathering of the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the thing that's actually supposed to get us excited is our unity to Jesus and celebrating that. That was what was specific for those who had been tested and were in the faith. If you weren't, you were asked to leave the gathering. And this was reserved only for those who were known to be a part of the community of faith. Now, the first part of the service, the first part of the gathering of of the church was an open invitation for anyone to come and hear the word of God proclaimed, to have the gospel shared with them. It was an encouragement to the believers, but it was also the proclamation of the gospel. So think in that respect, who's sitting in the room, who's in the gathering as this letter from Paul is being read to the Ephesians church. The scriptural portion of the service says this, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse four, everyone's hearing this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Who needs that message more? Those who are already in Christ or those who are not in Christ? Those who are not in Christ. They need to hear that God Before anything ever began, before the foundations of the world, knowing obviously what's going to take place, creation, uh, the fall, the, the, the flourishing of the human species, all of these things. Knowing that God's creation, he chose us, not in the sense of he chose us regardless of how we present ourselves to him. He chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, the key is always Jesus. But God has extended his invitation of salvation. He has extended the opportunity, if you will, to become a part of his family to every creature, meaning every human who has ever lived. There's no one who's been excluded from God's invitation. invitation. God's choice would be that every man and woman would be saved. That's what scripture tells us. God desires how many to perish? None. He wants none to perish but he wants all to come to the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, and his salvation. It blew my mind when I started to think about it that way. That as, who was, who was hearing this? Who was listening to whomever the, the pastor at Ephesus was reading this letter from Paul saying, brothers and sisters, let's listen to what our apostle Paul has to say, uh, what God is speaking to us through our brother. And he says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And there's others, there's, there's non-believers here. And they're hearing that God chose them. But he chose them not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus is. And he chose them to be holy and blameless before him. So we receive this from the Apostle Paul. And then it says this in verse at the end of verse 4. It says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved notice that the beloved is capitalized as he's speaking about the church all those who are in Christ are beloved of God so here's the blessing that we received. thirdly we received this general blessing in Christ these heavenly blessings if you will we are also blessed by being chosen in Christ. But we are also blessed by being predestined for adoption to God as sons. And as you know, oftentimes with uh, reference to sons, it's probably sons and daughters. It's a general consensus of all of creation, uh, man, male and female. In verse 5, it says that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so one of the great blessings that we receive in Christ is this adoption. God has adopted you and me because of Jesus. The effective work of Christ to all who believe is that we are then adopted into God's family and We receive the blessings of sonship because of Christ's position, because Christ gave himself to us fully. He gave his life for ours. We then receive the blessing of his position as the first son. I'll never forget, and I don't mean to embarrass you, but a long time ago when Savannah, as a young girl, was uh, discerning, she wanted to get baptized. And so we as parents wanted to make sure that she knew why. What what was the reason she wanted to get baptized? You know, as a little kiddo, you believe in Jesus, you go to Sunday school, all those good things. A lot of times, little kids want to come in, or kids are presented to be baptized because mom and dad want them to get baptized, not because they understand the actual exchange of what took place. But Savannah, in her own little six-year-old mind, at that point, said it's like Jesus switched places with us and I just went yep that's exactly right (laughs) and I'm not sure if she had heard Pastor John say that or not you know the great switcheroo as he calls it but (laughs) but but that's exactly what took place Jesus gave his life for ours so that he receives our punishment and our the wrath of God against our sin and we receive all of the blessings that were intended for the primary son the first son That's the beauty of this relationship that we have with him and why we should love him so deeply is because he's sharing with us. He's giving to us the things that we don't deserve and haven't earned. And that's the beauty of that relationship. And so the blessing that we have there is that we are predestined for adoption. And again, that's where we hear this as family language. This isn't just theology. This isn't just understanding how salvation works and trying to define it in academic terms. This is God is our father. You realize that to the Israelites, to the Jews in the Old Testament, God was Yahweh. He was God. And that's true. He was this mighty, powerful being. He was the lightning and thunder on Mount Sinai that the Jews were like, Moses, you go up for us. We ain't going near that, right? Like that was who God was to the Israelites. But do you realize that Jesus, as he came and ministered on earth, that he revealed to us the name of God? And it's not the Tetragrammatron. It's not the 26 characters of the Old Testament. It's, that's not it. The name of God to us is Father. That's who God is to us. He's our dad. And not, not in a flippant, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll hear preachers go, you know, when they refer to Jesus saying Abba, uh, they'll say, that just means daddy. Uh, no, no, it doesn't. No. Because Daddy has a, uh, a flippant, casual. flippant, casual, familiar character to it. And there's a sweetness in it. Oh, Daddy, you know, and that's sweet. But Father has a gravitas to it. There's a weight to that, that you go, there's an authority there. Now, within a good Father, there's also grace and love and mercy, but there's also authority and discipline. And it's funny, maybe you think that's splitting hairs over the language, but it's important. Jesus revealed to us the name of God for us in Christ and its father, its family language.